The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. I'd like to start this morning saying, like, I don't know about you, but uh, I used to be able to sleep anywhere, right? Like, I, when I was in high school, uh, I'd be in the shower in the morning, and I would lean my head up against the wall, and I could fall asleep standing up, all right? Like, I would just stand there and just fall asleep. I went to a Mississippi College down in Jackson, Mississippi. It's three hours south of here. Do you know how you get there? there through the most boring stretch of I-55 ever built, all right? Just, it's the worst thing in the world. It's so boring that the highlight, one of the highlights on that, that trip down uh, is a casket company. That's like the most exciting. I call my wife every time. We always do. We always call each other. We're like, where are they making Batesville? Caskets. Yay! Like, it's so stinking boring, right? And so there were times where I would just start to nod off when I was driving home. One, one time I was coming back, uh, I was moving back home for the summer. I just finished exams that morning, and I'd stayed up all night uh, studying, trying to make up for a semester of not. Uh, and, uh, and so I was trying to come home, and I just started to fall asleep. And, and I, I saw a road sign that said Grenada 25 miles. And then immediately afterwards, I saw a road sign that said Grenada 15 miles. There were 10 miles. I don't know how I did that. I don't know how I went 10 miles. So I immediately thought either I'm a time traveler, which would be awesome, or... Uh, I just fell asleep, uh, and so I had to pull over, and I had my truck just completely packed down with all the stuff from my dorm, and at the time, I even had guinea pigs because my parents never let me have them growing up, so I was like, I'm in college. I'm going to have them, and now I realize why. They smell like death. They're the worst thing in the world, and I had them in the car with me, and so the whole time, they're just squeaking and all this other stuff, and I had to pull over and just fall asleep on the side of the road at this rest area, just sleep there, and I said, sorry, guinea pigs. We're taking a break. I just fall asleep. I just couldn't handle it. And how many of you are like that? You've fallen asleep, stand, uh, uh, fallen asleep driving. Anyone ever started to nod off while driving? How many of you guys plan to be asleep before I finish this morning? All right. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your honesty. Um, sleeping can be dangerous when it's done at the wrong time and in the wrong place. Uh, for example, driving. Uh, or or perform, performing surgery, not a time you want to take a nap, or, or, or maybe when you're welding something, also not a time to, to just catch, catch up on your sleep, or, or when your wife's telling you about her day, not a good time, all right, that's out of place, it's dangerous, it's bad for you, and so the sermon this morning is entitled, Wake Up. It's entitled Wake Up. Now, some of you are asleep today. Now, I don't mean like right now, like some of you will be in about 10 minutes. I don't mean that. But I mean, some of you are asleep, and, and, and it's, a, it's a more dangerous sleep. It's a deeper sleep. So if you would, would you open your Bibles to the book of Jonah? To the book of Jonah. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under your seat. Uh, if you're going, where is Jonah? It's right after Obadiah. And you say, that doesn't help. Uh, look in the table of contents in the front. That's what it's there for. Uh, there ain't no shame in your game if you've got to look it up, all right? So go to Jonah. We're going to be in chapter one of Jonah. And let me give you some context. Jonah, a lot of you know, like you've heard the story of Jonah getting swallowed by a fish or something like that, right? But Jonah, he's a prophet of God, all right? Do you understand? We talked a, a couple of weeks ago about New Testament prophets, uh, but what we're talking about today, this is an Old Testament prophet. This is God speaks to Jonah. Jonah speaks to others on behalf of God, all right? So his words are God's words. This is a big responsibility that Jonah has. And so we're going to see, uh, literally, Jonah experiences the presence of the Lord and, the, and, the, and all the blessings that come with that. 
Um, but we're going to see Jonah kind of turn, kind of take a different um, path here in chapter 1. If you're ready, let's, let's go chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, of uh, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord says, go to Nineveh, all right? They're wicked. Uh, they, they are not pleasing to me. And my judgment will come to them if they don't repent. So you go and you tell them to repent. And Jonah says, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. I don't like those people. I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to be saved. So God, I don't care what you say. I'm running away from you. So he's not just running away from his responsibility, but he's literally running from the presence of God. So he gets on a boat trying to just get away from God. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So he gets on the ship, right? So God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not getting away from me that easy. So he throws a storm at the ship and it says it's so bad uh, that the ship threatens to break apart. And so the people that are on board, they're doing everything they know to make sure they don't drown. So they're throwing cargo overboard, right? They're, they're, they're redistributing weight and all these things, and they're calling out to their gods. They're doing everything they know to stop this. And what's going on with Jonah? Look at verse 5. But Jonah's gone down to the inner part of the ship, and it lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah could have helped Who knew on that ship what was going on? Jonah, of all people, Jonah knew what was going on. He could have helped, but what? He was asleep, right? He's asleep, and they're suffering, and they're about to perish, and they're asleep. Why is Jonah asleep? Well, Jonah's life was pretty difficult at this point, right? He didn't want to obey God, which meant that he needed to leave the presence of God. He knew the difficulty of that. He knew the the dangers of that, the consequences of that. This was a difficult place to be in. And so the way that Jonah dealt with it was that he didn't. He went to sleep. He said, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with, with this tension of doing what God's called me to do. And I don't want to do it. So I'm going to sleep. That's it. I'm checking out. I'm going to sleep. A lot of us deal with stress that way. Do you understand that? Raise your hand if if you're the same way. You deal with stress, you go to sleep. I want to check out. I want to be disconnected. I don't want to be there. I'm asleep, right? I I don't want to deal with it. And so what are you doing when you do that? You're cutting yourself off. You're not dealing with it. You're not thinking about it. You're You're not thinking about anybody else, really, just yourself. And you just don't want to deal with it. And you become asleep. And my question to you this morning is, are you asleep now, right? And again, some of you are. That's incredible. I just started. But no, like, are you asleep now? The world thinks we're asleep. The world looks at the church and they think that we're asleep. Here's what I mean by that. Our world is incredibly storm-tossed. Our world absolutely is, is, is suffering a tempest, is it not? It's storm-tossed. Think about Boston and the things that happen there. Texas and the things that happen there. The fact that in Tennessee alone, the food insecurity rate, people not knowing where their next meal is coming from, is 17% of people in our state don't know that. 25% of children in the state of Tennessee don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's a storm. 
April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, I don't know if you know that. Every year, 3.3 million reports of child abuse are made in the United States involving nearly 6 million children. The United States has the worst record in the industrialized nation, losing five children every day to abuse-related deaths. Shelby County is among the highest-ranked counties in Tennessee with human sex trafficking victims, supporting over 200 victims in the past 24 months. 347 fellow Memphians are, diagno- uh, have, uh, are living with HIV and AIDS. Approximately 25,000 children will age out of foster care system every year. They'll turn 18 And 25% will become homeless, 56% enter the unemployment ranks, 27% of the emancipated male children in foster care end up in jail, 30% of emancipated females in foster care experience early parenthood. And every day there are 116,000 searches on the internet for child pornography. Our world is in a tempest. It is a storm-tossed world that we live in. Don't think for a second because you might get away from it. You might turn your TV off of the news and onto Nickelodeon that those things aren't happening. This is our world. And it's not happening overseas. It's not happening in another state. It's not happening in another city or another county. It's here. Our world is storm-tossed. And our world looks at us and they go, they're asleep. They're that captain that comes down and says, you're asleep, church. Sometimes they they either think that we're not doing anything about it, they see our buildings, they see our signs for Bible studies, right? But they haven't seen us in our community touching the untouchable. That's why uh, uh, Madeline O'Hare, a famous atheist, this is what she said about atheism. She said, an atheist believes that a hospital should be built instead of a church. An atheist believes that that the deed must be done instead of a prayer said. An atheist strives for involvement in life and not escape into death. He wants disease conquered, poverty vanished, war eliminated. She looks at the church and says, you're asleep. You don't want these things. I want these things. How unbelievable is that? How against Jesus is that? Jesus came and he gave his life for that. To end war, right? To end famine, to to mobilize his people, to be his hands and feet. But the world looks at us and says, you're asleep. You don't even care, you're not doing anything. Or they look at us and they think we're irrelevant, outdated and ignorant. We give the world more angry sound bites than engaging, thoughtful, gracious and kind words. Benjamin Disraeli said, where knowledge ends, religion begins. They think we're irrelevant. They think we're outdated. They think we're ignorant. Our world thinks we're asleep. But the world is not trying to sleep. The world is trying to do everything they can to quiet the storm. They see those things. They see human trafficking. They see unemployment. And they're doing everything that they can, right? Through their education, Hey, Bartlett Giamatti, is a pre- he used to be the president of Yale and the commissioner of Major League Baseball. He said, a liberal education is at the heart of a civil society. He's saying, academia can save us, right? That's what we need. Our education will save us. It'll fix these problems. The more educated we are, the better we'll be. Or government. George Washington said, government is not reason. It's not eloquent. It is force, like fire. It's a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Government can't solve all of our problems, right? Education can't. Government can't. And then they try their religion, right? Maybe they turn to Islam and they say, I'm going to keep these five pillars and that's going to fix my society and I'll enter paradise. Well, of course, unless Allah just doesn't want you there. 
It's a religion of fear and uncertainty. Or maybe they turn to Buddhism and they say, you should care so much about what's going around, on around you that you shouldn't care at all. It's a religion of detachment. Or maybe more commonly they turn to secular humanism, which believes objectively that truth is relative. Did you catch that? They believe objectively that truth is relative. That's what our world's doing. Everything that they can, right? To calm this storm, to figure it out. And what does the church do? She sleeps. She sleeps. Your neighbors are paralyzed with grief. Your family members are struggling for meaning in their lives. Your coworkers are being pulled to the depths of despair. Your friends can't handle the stress of their need and of poverty. But you know Jesus. He has the words of life. He is the God of all comfort. He is the great provider. He is the restorer. He is the kind king. But are you asleep? Are you silent? Why do we sleep? Why? If we have these words of Jesus, if we have the one who can fix these problems, who can quiet the storm, why do we sleep? Number one, it's, it's hard to engage culture. It's hard. It's hard for multiple reasons. Number one, people are difficult. You know, I had to um, learn, one of the, the, the hardest lessons I had to learn is that, you know, when people come to me and, the, and they, they, they're telling me about their lives and, and, and they want me to listen to them, they don't always want the truth. You get what I'm saying? They don't always want me to tell them the truth. They just want me to shut up and listen, Right? So, so maybe some of you have experienced that, right? Like, like you've had someone come to you and say just some difficulty going on in their life, right? And you go, well, it's clear to me there's some insight here. I think maybe you should go this direction. And then what do they do? You idiot, shut up. I don't, I don't want to hear that, right? I'm hurt. That's all I want. And people are difficult. And they'll hate truth. Luke 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So it says, to live as Christians, to stand for truth, people will hate you, they won't like you, they'll exclude you, they'll cut you out. You might experience loneliness, right? They'll revile you, they'll insult you. And something we probably experienced more recently uh, uh, than most of these is, they'll spurn your name as evil. You'll be classified as a bigot. Our culture will tell you love is endorsement. It's not just acceptance, it's endorsement. If you love somebody, you'll endorse what they do. It's not love. And when you stand up and say, that's not, hey, hold up, that's not really love. It's not how it works. Think about it with your own kids, okay? I don't endorse everything my son does. Yesterday, he climbed up on the table and he looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm going to fly now. I don't endorse that, son. That's not good. I accept your crazy brain that would climb up there and think, I'm going to fly now, but I don't endorse that behavior. That's not love. It would not be loving for me to endorse that. And our culture says, if you don't believe love is endorsement, you're a bigot and you're evil. People will hate you for standing for truth. Jesus says, though, you're blessed. That should be enough. It's hard because people are difficult. It's also hard because we feel intellectually ill-equipped. What if they stump me, right? Uh, what if they're smarter than me? You know, I, it's, it's easy. I'll give you a confession. It's, it's really easy for me, comfortable for me, to talk to students about Jesus. 
and to talk to, to students who, who, will, who will stand firmly against the claims of Christ. It's comfortable for me to stand against them and to speak truth to them. But you give me someone older, you give me someone with a, a heck of an education, you give me a, a professional, I'll get nervous. I'll feel ill-equipped. Regardless of whatever training I've had, I'll feel that same thing. Luke 21, 15 says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So he says, I'm gonna help you. So one of the things we need to do if we wanna not stop this feeling of being ill-equipped, maybe we should be equipped. Maybe we should worship God with our minds. Mark 12, 30 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and what? With all your mind and with all your strength. A few ways we can worship God with our mind. Number one, grow in knowledge. Grow in knowledge. Colossians 1:10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I want to say this, I say it all the time, but I need to keep saying it because I don't know if you believe me. There are no professional Christians. There's no one that's a pro at it, all right? There's no one in another league like that, okay? And so there aren't secrets and understandings reserved for the pros. Jesus wants to be known by you. He's called you to a relationship with himself. So be his student. Don't be afraid. Be his student. Read his word. Read about his work and other people. Read Christian books by Christian authors. Know what you believe and why you believe it. 1 Peter 3 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. So, so find out information. Go to CRI.org, Christian Research Institute. Go to RZIM.org, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. There are resources. Be a student. Be equipped. Grow in your knowledge. Second, fill your memory. Number one, hide his word in your hearts. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I can't tell you how many times just being familiar with the word of God, the Holy Spirit has brought to mind things that, that the Lord has said to me through the scriptures in moments that were incredibly, um, uh, I could not have seen them. They were incredibly surprising, right? And so the Lord does a great thing when we commit our mind to him, our memory to him. He'll use it. He's not going to waste it right? He's not going to waste it. I used to be afraid in school that when I memorized certain things, it meant that I bumped other information out that I wanted to remember. You know what I mean? And so I, I was afraid to commit my memory to something that I would probably never, ever use again, right? Uh, and so uh, uh, in the same way, we might think that, but God won't waste your memory. He'll use it and he'll bless it. Exercise reason, thirdly. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. To reason is to think, understand, and form a judgment by a process of logic. To love God with our minds is to love God with our logic and our, our, our analytical thinking. To wrestle with biblical understandings and concepts. To think analytically. To work hard to understand godly things. Work hard to understand how science sings the praises of God. Work hard, use your mind, wrestle, don't give up. Don't say, man, that's difficult, I don't know how that's gonna work together, I'm just gonna, let's watch TV. Don't give up. Work, worship God with your mind, work hard. I'd like to give you a simple warning in that, don't let reason 
trump revelation. God revealed his love for me, cost Jesus his life. I can't get my mind around that, that kind of love. I can't reason that kind of love. So don't let reason trump revelation. Because Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So another reason it's difficult to engage culture is, is that we're unwilling to be uncomfortable. To engage culture is to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. I don't like the garbage that kids watch on TV, so I don't know anything about it. Do you hope to win youth to Christ? You better know something about that garbage. I don't like all the lies and the backbiting in politics, so I just stay out of it. Do you hope to reach Americans for Jesus? You better know something about those lies and the backbiting and politics. My neighbor and his girlfriend live together, and that, that kind of makes me uncomfortable, right? I know they're not married, and that kind of makes me uncomfortable, so I, I don't want to go over there. Do you care about them? Do you want to have an influence for them for the kingdom? Then make a pie, build a bridge, get over it, and get your butt over there, right? We're unwilling to be uncomfortable. Don't remove yourself. From our culture. Jesus prayed that we would not be taken out of the world, but in John 17, he says, God, don't take them out, but protect them. Don't take them out, protect them. So we shouldn't try to remove ourselves from the world. And ultimately, may we, uh, may we be like Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 9, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not, not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as an outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. We have to be um, willing to be uncomfortable. Another reason it's difficult to engage culture, the problems in our world appear too big. Poverty, war, famine, racism, families torn apart, health care, our economy, human trafficking. It's too big. Mother Teresa said this, God hasn't called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. 1 John 4, 4 says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Just be faithful. God's prepared you for what he's called you to. Ephesians, 4, uh, Ephesians 2 says, Where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. God prepared you for this work. God prepared you to engage our culture where you are. God prepared you to do this. He's shaping you. He's molding you to do this. He knows what he's asked of you, and he'll be with you. God will empower you, Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We think the, the problems in our world are too big, but God's bigger, and God knows what he's doing with you. Ultimately, what does it boil down to? Why don't we engage culture? We're lazy. It's hard work to engage culture, to be hated, to work hard, to learn, to be uncomfortable. But listen, you aren't your own. First Corinthians says that you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. You're not your own. Your rights 
to be comfortable, your rights to do whatever you want to do, you don't have them anymore. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to God. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. So you don't have the right to be lazy. You don't have the right to kick up your feet. You don't have the right to be comfortable. You don't have the right to be ignorant. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. The other reason we sleep is not just as difficult to engage culture, but despair is natural. Delight is trained. Despair is a natural response to difficulty, and delight's a trained response to, to difficulty. Jesus asked the disciples to stay up with him and pray before he was betrayed, and, and, and they slept, and he asked again, and they slept, and he asked again, and they slept. Why? Jesus had just told them, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to die. And so what do they do? What's their natural response? They despaired. They said, well, what's the point? Stay up and pray. Why? What's the point? You're going to die. We're going to be alone here. And they despaired, right? And that's our natural inclination. It's easy to despair. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you've lost a loved one. So you're despairing. Maybe your finances are a mess. You're despairing. Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread and you're despairing. Maybe your kids just told you they hated you and you believe it and you're despairing. Maybe there's a temptation that has overcome you again and again this week and you're despairing. It's easy to despair. But we need to train ourselves to delight in the Lord. Psalm 13 um, I want you to read this with me. This is David. He's dealing with that despair. He's dealing with that. I want to check out. I want to go to sleep. I don't want to deal with this. But then he trains himself to delight in the Lord. Look at Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. And here's, here's how he trained himself to delight. Look at verse five. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Train yourself to delight and not despair. Whatever your reason is for sleeping, I want you to learn something from Jonah this morning. God will wake you up. God will wake you up. Maybe a church uh, goes on the verge of bankruptcy God's trying to wake you up. Maybe your business is crumbling. God's trying to wake you up. Your relationships are strained and barely holding on. Maybe God's trying to wake you up. It could be that God's sending a storm to say to you just what he said to Jonah. Jonah, I'm after you. And I'm after you because I love you. I'm not done with you. I made you for this work. And there's great joy in this work. And it's hard. And I know it's hard. But I'm not letting you get away from this joy. I'm not letting you get away from this work. Because I love you too much for that. So maybe God's doing the same in your life. What did Jonah do when God tried to wake him up from this storm? Did he repent immediately? Did he sing a hymn to the Lord? What did he do? Look at verse 12. He told him what? Pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Come on, Jonah. Come on. God sends this storm. He's trying to wake you up. He's trying to say, I love you. I'm not letting you get away. And what does he do? 
he repent immediately? Does he, he sing a song? No. He says, throw me into the sea. I'm done. I'm, no, I'm done with this. Throw me overboard. It's time to die, right? And what happens? He starts to sink and he starts to call out to God. And God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah and saved him. And then Jonah finally repented. If you're sleeping here, you need to follow Jonah's lead here and repent. When Jonah repented in chapter 2, God used Jonah to save an entire nation of people. And God can use anyone with a repentant heart. I was reading uh, in Matthew earlier uh, this week, um, John the Baptist was, was saying something to the Pharisees that were there, and it was really the teachers of the law there. It's really interesting what he said. This, this phrase stuck out at me, and he says this to him. He says, uh, Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I thought, that's, I don't understand what that means. What does repentance mean? Well, literally, what that word literally means is a change of mind. It literally means a change of mind. It means looking at your life and choosing to change your mind, choosing to stop loving the things that God hates and start loving the things that God loves. That's what it means. It means looking at your life and saying, this behavior, this thing in my life, whatever it is, this affection, whatever it is, God doesn't love it. It dishonors God. So I'm not going to love it anymore. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to change the way I think about it. And I'm going to start loving the things that God loves. And so it says, bear fruit uh, in keeping with repentance. What's the fruit in keeping with repentance? What's the fruit of repentance? It means that your life will show you're repentant. There's some fruit of repentance in Jonah's prayer. Look at this in Jonah chapter 2. A repentant heart is humble. Look at verse two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. There's no pride here. I called out of my distress. I don't have it all together. I'm falling apart. But you're worthy to be called upon in this moment. You're the only one who can help me. A repentant heart is humble. A repentant heart is thankful. Look at verse nine. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. A true repentant heart is thankful to the great restorer. I think uh, uh, a repentant heart is worshipful. Look, can, look reading, can, continue reading, excuse me, in verse 9. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A repentant heart worships the Lord. Doesn't look away from the Lord, but worships the Lord. A repentant heart, lastly, maybe most importantly, is desperate. Look at verse five. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. A repentant heart is desperate for the power of God in their life. Jonah's literally saying, I was at the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the sea. I couldn't get any deeper. The seaweed was wrapping around me, taking me in. But you saved me. I was desperate for you. A repentant heart is desperate for the power of God in their life. You realize that without the Holy Spirit, there's no goodness in you. There's no hope for you. There's no joy. You're desperate for God to work in you. If you've been asleep and you repent, what's the result? I'm telling you, it's good news. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Jonah 2, verse 10. Here's the good news. Here's what you'll get. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. You'll get vomited. Isn't that good news? Aren't you excited? 
You're going to get thrown up. This is awesome news. Might not have read down far enough. Hold up. Let's go to Jonah 3, verse 4 through 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What happened to Jonah when he was asleep and then God woke him up and he repented? What happened? God used him. This, this angry, this spiteful, this, this stupid little man who threw himself overboard to die, who, who sat in a, a fish for three days and three nights. I'm sure he smelled awesome. This guy... God used him. He used him. And he didn't just give him a second chance. He gave him a third, a fourth, and a fifth. God used him. God can use anyone with a repentant heart. He used Jonah to save a nation. Imagine what God can do in your life. Imagine the things that seem just overwhelming and too big. Your family, the problems in your family seem overwhelming and too big. Do you have a repentant heart? Are you ready to work? God can use that. Or maybe, uh, maybe the, the problems in our nation. We see families being torn apart, people growing up without dads. We see legislation that moves in to limit freedoms in our nation. Those are overwhelming problems. They're large. Are you ready to work? Are you awake? Are you repentant? Are you looking to the Lord? He can use you. God is bigger. So this morning, as, as we close this time together we've spent in Jonah, Christian, some of you need to wake up. So you need to wake up today. And, and what you need to do is you need to thank God that he used this morning to wake you up. Some of you, you need to look at the storms in your life and start asking that question, am I asleep? Is God trying to get my attention? Maybe not. Maybe there's another purpose there. But maybe for some of you, and I, I, would, I would seem to think that there's got to be some of you out there who you're dealing with a storm in your life and it's been you've been asleep you, you've, you've been lazy you haven't worked hard you're not pursuing the Lord you don't want to deal with it and so the Lord's saying get up I've got something for you to do here I've got something better than what you want so some of you you need to wake up this morning for some we need to thank God for keeping you awake and, and pray for your fellow brothers and sisters for others of you maybe you've been asleep your whole life and maybe when I've been talking about trusting God with your life, you say, eh, not really. Like, like maybe when I, I talk about um, literally you aren't your own anymore. The things that you want, uh, they're, they're not important anymore. What, what, what God wants is most important now. Your life is, is a living sacrifice. Your ambitions are his ambitions. And you go, that's not me. Maybe some of you, you need to wake up for the first time. Maybe some of you, you need to surrender to the Lord for the first time. And I want you to know, just like he was gracious to that city of Nineveh, that wicked and horrible city of Nineveh, they repented and what did God do? He didn't shun them. He didn't crush them. What did he do? He accepted them. He forgave them. God will do the same for you. He did it for me. He'll do it for you. So would you pray with me? Um, before we move into a time of communion, would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the, uh, the life of, of Jonah, for, for what we get to learn from it. Um, 
Lord, we are sorry for the times we've been asleep. We're sorry when we haven't engaged our culture, when we haven't fed the hungry, clothed the naked, when we haven't comforted the abused and the victimized. Lord, we're sorry for that. When we've, we've gotten into our holy huddle and literally said to hell with the rest of the world. Lord, we repent. Lord, wake us up and use us. Lord, there might be some people in this room who've never woken up. Lord, following you is, it's a hobby at best. Lord, my prayer is that they wake up today. That they simply say to you, they don't want to live this way anymore. They want their life to matter for you. They want to be forgiven. They want to be made new. They want to know you. Plain and simple. So Lord, I pray those people would have the courage to surrender to you today. You'd give them the faith to do that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask if you're going to help us serve communion, would you please come forward now, the elders that are coming forward. I just want to read to you real quick out of 1 Corinthians um, 11 about the Lord's Supper, what we're doing here. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a time for us to remember what Jesus has done for us. This is a time to celebrate his uh, body broken, his blood poured out for us. Um, so we're going to dismiss you by rose to come up. Um, you'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, eat it, and return to your, your seat. I'd ask you to spend this time as, as you wait your turn to, to, to have your heart open before the Lord. If you need to repent, repent. You need to cut some things out, cut some things out. You need to be honest with some things with the Lord, be honest. But do what you need to do with the Lord um, in this time as we celebrate. Let me pray for us and we'll start communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for what you've done and continue to do for us. Lord, you spilled your blood for us. You broke your body for us. And Lord, it's been enough. And it will always be enough. And we'll stand one day united with you, made perfect with you, and we'll still sing about it. So Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. It's in your name. Amen.